This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. China has issued a surprise ruling banning thousands of university students from studying online with overseas universities. It means more than 40,000 Chinese students will need to return to Australia for the beginning of the semester, but travel costs and visa delays could stop many from making it in time. Political reporter Dana Morse has more. Before the pandemic, almost a quarter of all international students in Australia were from China. But because of border closures for the past couple of years, they've been studying remotely, although that's about to come to an end. Chief Executive at Universities Australia, Katrina Jackson, says it'll be good to get Chinese students back in the country. It'll certainly mean that some of those 40,000 Chinese students who've been very keen to get back here and resume study will have more incentive to get back here and resume study, and that's a good thing. With just weeks until classes resume, the Chinese government has ordered all students studying at overseas universities to return to on-campus learning by the beginning of the semester, saying it'll only acknowledge degrees where students have attended classes in person. The regulator had made it clear that semester two was the time that students um, would need to be back here um, uh, to, to study face-to-face. So universities have been preparing. Uh, however, this is a little bit earlier than we thought, but very keen to get those students back in classrooms with their Australian friends. In Australia, it's caught the sector by surprise. With China, we have always come to expect the unexpected. That's Phil Honeywell, Chief Executive of the International Education Association in Australia. He says the change is partly due to how online learning is viewed in China. The Chinese government has never been comfortable with online learning. They prefer, based on their traditional pedagogy and teaching practices to have face-to-face on-campus teaching and learning. Australian universities had already notified international students that they'd need to be back on campus by the middle of the year, but now they're up against a tight timeline. Of course it's going to be very difficult for many of them to get passports renewed, student visas on a timely manner from our Home Affairs Department and onto a, a plane to get to Australia in time. We may well find that many of these students choose to defer and put off coming here until second semester this year. That could cause some financial troubles for universities. Clearly, uh, any university faced with a large number of deferrals when they've been gaining tuition fee revenue from the same student who's been studying from their apartment in Beijing or Shanghai uh, totally online will be faced with a financial hit. In a statement, Federal Education Minister Jason Clare welcomed the return of Chinese students but acknowledged the short time frame could cause some logistical issues. He says he's working with Universities and Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill to make the transition as smooth as possible. Katrina Jackson says they're all trying to make sure international students can start the semester. Government is in control of the admission process to the country, so we'll need a real push on getting those visas through as quickly as we possibly can, and we know there have been delays, but significant efforts to deal with those delays and speed-ups in processing. So government and universities working together will be doing everything we possibly can to make sure that students are not forced to defer or drop out. 
That's Katrina Jackson from Universities Australia, ending that report by Dana Morse. Revive is the name of the Albanese government's national cultural policy, which is being unveiled today. There'll be $286 million over four years to overhaul the existing Australia Council, which will now be known as Creative Australia. Four new bodies will be set up under it to guide the direction of First Nations artists, writers and musicians, and to look at issues like fair wages and bullying. Tony Burke is the Arts Minister, as well as the Minister for Employment and Workplace Relations. Tony Burke, you're a musician, you love the arts. Paint a picture of what Australia's cultural and arts scene will look like in five years because of this new policy. Well, everything that comes from today goes back to the artists. So government doesn't make movies, uh, we, don't, we don't write the music. But what we are doing is providing, I guess... Uh, a bigger canvas, uh, a brighter spotlight, cranking up the volume to 11 and giving our artists the opportunity that we've now got a much better chance of, in Australia, becoming a country again where the shows you're watching are Australian shows, your music you're listening to is a soundtrack to your life, our own music, the books that you're reading are more likely to be our novels. And so, effectively, what we want is to be able to have a situation where you know you can go through a menu on a streaming service and not everything's from the UK and the United States. That's a that's the end point that we're trying to reach here to make sure that life in Australia is filled with our own stories. Let's just pick up on that point. The Australian film and TV sector wants you to make streaming services like Netflix and Disney and Amazon put a 20% of their local revenue they earn into making Australian content. Is that the figure you will adopt? Uh, what we're doing now, the, the decision that we've, we're making and we've announced today are the deadlines. So first six months consultation where we'll work through exactly issues like the one you've just raised. There'll be legislation in the second half of this year in the parliament and that legislation will have a start date no later than the 1st of July next year. So there's a few different ways of doing this. There's different ways of ramping it up. There's sensible consultation that we'll have with industry but the end point needs to be that the situation we have now where if you're watching free-to-air TV through your aerial, you've got Australian content guaranteed, but if you're watching it through the internet, there is zero guarantees at all. Those days have to come to an end, and 1st of July next year, that will have been addressed. You're also setting up a new centre for arts and entertainment workplaces. Why is that needed? Why can't, say, Fair Work Australia oversee what the workers are paid, what they're actually owed, and ensure that workplace standards are upheld? One of the things that's really different for arts and entertainment workers is very often you don't have an employment relationship. Uh, very often it might be that you, in fact, have booked the venue for the gig. Uh, it might be that you have a contractual relationship. It might be that you're moving from workplace to workplace, from festival to festival. And one of the things that happens is the challenges you might have in not having a safe workplace are not, in fact, from a permanent employer, but from a concept of, oh, if you know when to step out of line, you'll never work again. So we need to have something that's very much tailored to this industry, but that also then has the capacity to say, if there's a business that's constantly stepping out of line here and they then want to come knocking on the door for money from the government, well, the fact that they haven't been providing a safe workplace is going to follow them. 
extra funding for institutions like the National Gallery and the National uh, Library aren't included in today's policy. Can they expect a big boost in May's budget? Oh, the Prime Minister's given some some pretty strong indications that, uh, you know, for those institutions, they've been run down, run down badly. The reason that it wasn't part of the cultural policy announcement is very much that, you know, whether, whether or not the a roof is leaking uh, is a core government responsibility, not actually part of cultural policy of itself. So it didn't fit neatly into cultural policy. The decision will still be made soon. It'll be made in this budget. There are some things relevant to those institutions so that are part of cultural policy. So we will be announcing today a program for the National Gallery where they'll now be able to share their collection with suburban and regional galleries. Governments are often tempted to cut back funding to the arts sector when financial circumstances change or apply so-called efficiency dividends, which severely limit what they can do. The funding that you're announcing today, is that guaranteed for the next four years? You're not going to chop it back at any stage? Oh, the, the, funding's, the funding's locked in and the funding's ongoing. Yeah, a, lot, a lot of people talk about with the arts and cultural policy about how hard people were hit in the pandemic. The truth is, before the pandemic started, this, the sector was already vulnerable. You know, ever since those George Brandis cuts back in 2014, you know, ripped, ripped millions and millions of dollars out of, the, out of the sector, people have always been just in that state of vulnerability. And while the previous government will say, oh, they spent a whole lot of money uh, during uh, the lockdown periods, it's also true, you know, some of that money went to a Guns N' Roses tour at the same time that a whole lot of Australian artists were, were absolutely struggling. So we're making really deliberate strategic decisions here. That, and the reason it's called Revive as well, this is five years for the industry to get back onto its feet, to get back to where it should be. And then hopefully in five years' time, we're looking at taking a, another pretty exciting step forward. Tony Burke, thanks for your time this morning. Great to talk to you, Sabra. Israel's Prime Minister wants more civilians carrying guns following a deadly synagogue shooting that left seven people dead. The attack in East Jerusalem followed a military raid in the occupied West Bank where nine Palestinians were killed, sparking a fresh wave of violence in the region. And it comes as the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, prepares to visit. Middle East correspondent Alison Horne reports from Jerusalem. Anger and grief as the victims of last week's synagogue shooting are farewelled. This man's father was among the dead. You were murdered and you died a real hero, he says. Seven people were killed when a Palestinian gunman opened fire at worshippers leaving Friday prayers in a settlement in East Jerusalem. Now Israeli forces have welded shut the doors of his house, sealed up before it will be demolished at the order of Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He also wants the killer's family to lose their Israeli residency and be deported. 
The synagogue attack, which came 24 hours after nine Palestinians were killed by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank, has thrust the region into a new cycle of violence. Benjamin Netanyahu says now is the time to arm more civilians, planning to expedite weapons permits, especially for rescue responders. We are not seeking an escalation, but we are prepared for any scenario. Our answer to terrorism is a heavy hand and a strong, swift and precise response. Israel's National Security Minister is drafting a bill for the death penalty for attackers, though it's unclear whether he'll get widespread political support. Clashes continue between Israelis and Palestinians. Leaders in the international community are calling for the violence to be de-escalated. Even the Pope praying for peace. The spiral of death that increases day by day only closes the few glimmers of trust that exist between the two peoples. I appeal to the two governments and the international community to immediately find other paths to peace. But in the West Bank, there are calls to arms. And Israel has already indicated there'll be increased military raids. It's likely more violence will follow. This is Alison Horn in Jerusalem reporting for AM. A watershed moment leading to reform of policing across the United States. That's what a prominent civil rights lawyer believes will happen following the death of another black American at the hands of Memphis police. This time, the officers involved were African-American. Video shows five officers beating Tyree Nichols. North America correspondent Jade McMillan reports from Memphis. On the streets of Memphis, there's shock and sadness at the loss of Tyree Nichols, but also anger as residents try to understand the circumstances leading up to the 29-year-old black man's death. This time last year, Lakeisha Tate visited a memorial in Minneapolis dedicated to George Floyd, who was murdered by a police officer. Now there's a pile of flowers growing not far from her Memphis home at the site where Mr Nichols was beaten. And once again, just like George Ford, this young man was calling for his mom. You know, it's just, it's just senseless. My, my, my question is why? When, when does it stop? Will it ever stop? You know, why did it take five police officers for a routine traffic stop? He was just, just like George Ford, just wanted to get home to his family. It's just heartbreaking. Graphic footage released by Memphis Police shows Mr Nichols being punched, kicked and struck with a baton following a traffic stop. Five officers, who were also black men, have been fired and charged with second-degree murder, while the special street crimes unit they worked for has been disbanded. The lawyer representing Mr Nichols' family, Benjamin Crump, has welcomed that decision. But he's told CNN broader changes are needed in Memphis and across the country to prevent similar cases of police brutality. This is such a difficult video on many levels. We said that it's going to remind people of the Rodney King video in 1992. And that was a watershed moment for America. And I believe this video is a watershed moment for America. The only question that remains is how much progress have we made and what 
are our national leaders going to do? A number of US states and cities made legislative and policy changes in the wake of George Floyd's death, aimed at addressing excessive use of force. But a federal package of laws, which included a national ban on chokeholds and increased transparency measures, has stalled in Congress. Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin argues it's time to revisit the issue. We need a national conversation on this. We do not need denial or willful indifference. Uh, we've got to talk about keeping America safe, but doing it in a humane, sensible, rational fashion. President Joe Biden has told Tyree Nichols' parents that he'll continue trying to push for new legislation. In the meantime, people in Memphis are left wondering what went wrong in their city. This is Jade McMillan in Memphis reporting for AM. In recent years, Australians have battled drought, fires, deluge and floods. One CSIRO expert is calling the swings from one extreme weather event to another climate whiplash. As Jaden Barden reports, Indigenous rangers across northern Australia are getting increasingly worried about the effects it's having. In Arnhem Land, in the NT's tropical north, Wadakan Indigenous Rangers Director Rosemary Nubbawad says she's worried the climate is seesawing between droughts and floods she's not used to. The river, it's been like flooding and getting drying up and also we've been getting pretty hot. Everything has changed now of this weather. Like it's time for green plum to fall down so we can collapse. But the storm it just keeps on coming and coming. In the Red Desert at Uluru, Alanu Parks Australia ranger Shaley Swan is also seeing more damage from both severe heat and floods. Now we've got hotter months of the year where we get higher risks of wildfires burning hotter. Also those times of the year it's higher rains where we get more erosion happening within the landscape and um, longer periods of drought. Unfortunately, even a lot of the plants are, are not being able to get through some of these longer droughts. CSIRO climate projections scientist Michael Gross says climate change will drive more of these pivots from one extreme to another. People in Australia felt a bit of whiplash between droughts and fires and then pretty quickly going into floods. And this increase in different types of extremes has been termed by some climate whiplash. So going from one extreme to a different type of extreme without a lot of break in between. That's going to be more and more of a concern. He says Australia has warmed slightly more more than 1.47 degrees so far and emissions reductions worldwide caused by COVID-era travel restrictions have now been eclipsed. The warming targets are very much on track to reach that 1.5 degree limit specified by the Paris Agreement by about the mid-2030s and Australia is warming a little bit faster than that global average. Have the actual emissions started to reduce a little bit? We did see a dip through COVID. However, we're still very much heading for much more than two degrees of global warming, which is, is a big concern. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Modelling forecasts that the difference between impacts from 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming include losing either 8 or 16% of plant species, losing 1.5 million or 3 million tonnes of global fish catches and losing either 70 or 99% of coral reefs. Climate change is loading the dice for more extremes like heat, extreme fire weather, marine heat waves leading to coral bleaching and more. Mr Gross says there's still uncertainty about some climate change impacts. For example, northern Australia could be getting wetter or it could possibly get drier. 
He says the world's warming trajectory is unlikely to change within the next 10 years, but whether global emissions are reduced this decade will make a big difference to the longer-term future. We're now perhaps off the very highest worst-case pathway, and the pledges and the trajectory looking forward is looking good, but we need to make sure that that actually becomes a reality rather than just a pledge. CSIRO climate projection scientist Michael Gross speaking there with Jane Barton. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. Australian politicians are being threatened with violence in volumes never seen before. Today, an expert in extremism and what's fueling the spike. And we speak to an MP about her experience. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.